all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Slatman. I am a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and honored to be so. I have over 45 years experience in fire investigations, having first been a police detective and then moving into private sector. And I have a wonderful co-host, and here she is. This is Donna Ingram, and I have almost 30 years past director of IAAI in fire and fraud. Welcome to Speaking of Fire. And today we are honored to have two very prestigious guests um, on our show. Dr. John DeHaan has over 45 years in in, uh, fire and explosion-related forensic science, and uh, he is... uh, he has contributed so much to the to our field in research and and um, and teaching. Uh, he has uh, authored editions uh, of uh, Kirk's Fire Investigations, and uh, along with uh, Dr. David Eikhove, and uh, has been president of, of FireX Forensics, uh, private consulting firm. However, he is um, he is trying to retire, and everybody uh, on on. Um, on LinkedIn is is uh, giving him kudos for his uh, his uh, career and and his con- contributions and trying to talk him out of it. But I don't think we're going to be able to do that, are we, Doctor? No, forty seven years as a criminalist has has been enough, and I'm really uh, <clears throat> excuse me tired. And uh, <laughs> but you know, there's always another puzzle, and that's the scary thing about retirement is I keep getting these phone calls saying, well, you know, what about this one, and how could this have happened, and you go. Oh, I can't resist this one. We'll just do one more. And so it's stretching now into uh, infinity. Yes, and, and you know, you, you helped me out uh, in one in, uh, in the Springfield area of uh, Missouri once on a, on a vapor spread analysis, and uh, that, that individual ended up going to prison for seven years, and we appreciated your, your input to that. We also have uh, Chief Ronald John Sarnacki, uh, the executive director of the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, and he was—he's a firefighter. Began his uh, career as a firefighter in Prince George's County uh, Fire EMS, and has over 40 years, uh, uh, and now is uh, to chief of the department. He is also uh, the has um, he developed a, a program called Everyone Goes Home, uh, which is about firefighter safety and line of duty deaths. And he has been, I've, I've met Ron, uh, oh, heck, I guess I met Ron back in, in 2004 when I was president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. And he has, he and his staff has so much supported the fallen firefighters. Ron, um, you, how did you get in, uh, how did you get into uh, doing the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation? Well, first off, thanks for having me on the show today. And it's a pleasure to talk to everybody. I was serving in Prince George's County Fire and EMS Department and was chief and was getting near the end of uh, the tenure there and thought that I would like to, you know, do something else like we all do. We, you talk about that retirement, we seem to retire and then do something else. So that's the trend. And I saw the advertisement for the foundation and I 
sent an application in, and Hal Bruno was the chairman of the board of directors, and I knew Hal from our relationship. He was in Montgomery County Fire, adjoining Prince George's, and he called me up and asked me if I was serious about leaving and retiring, and I said I was contemplating it, and basically said, well, if you want the job, it's yours. It happened that quickly. You know, God bless his soul. He was terrific. He was also a broadcaster, and everybody knew Hal, and uh, and he also used to be uh, uh, like the MC of the uh, um, CFSI, the Congressional Fire Service Institute uh, dinner. But anyway, well, what we're going to talk about today is deaths in fires, and it's a somber, it's a somber, um, you know, uh, subject, and there won't be as much humor. Um, as usual on this show, only because of the subject matter. However, uh, there will, um, and I think Dr. DeHaan and, and Ron will, uh, Chief Ron uh, Sarnacki will, will back me up in this. A lot of times you'll see uh, people on TV that are, fa- they are either police officers, detectives, or, or, um, or firefighters, and you'll see them outside of a scene of a major incident where there's been deaths, and you might see them laughing. And it's not about it's not about jokes, and it's not about them taking it lightly. It's purely a defense mechanism that people have, and so uh, and I know that. And I was a police detective myself on, on the homicide squad, so I know that uh, that is. So if you see that, I want you to forgive. Uh, don't get the impression that uh, don't be judgmental about that. Um, and uh, that's right. I mean, it's a release of anxiety. Uh, simply. It, Put, that it has to go somewhere and it's welling up inside of you and it's not something that you can react badly either you know so a, dra- a dramatic action would not be appropriate no you 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 do what you have to do you do your job first and you let the impact later yes. uh, the emotional impact what do you think doctor well that's very true um and um Someone asked me recently, well, you know, gee, you deal a lot with uh, bodies and fires, including fires that you've actually set as part of your research. And, you know, don't you feel an emotional um, element? And the answer is always no. Um, they are basically evidence now, and my obligation is to do the very best I can with collecting that evidence and documenting it and explaining it and reconstructing the events to uh, come to a conclusion as to how this uh, happened, in some cases, how it could be avoided in the future. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that is completely understandable. What about you, Chief? Well, unfortunately, in the business we're in, we deal with those tragedies when we respond to emergencies, and You have to ensure that the incident is thoroughly investigated and the conditions are recorded, but also you have to, you know, try to be compassionate to those family members that may be outside knowing what's going on inside that structure. And so having resources in place to help families with notification and ultimately, you know, the return of the individual to them and that process. Uh, I can remember many calls, unfortunately, a lot involving children where we would actually take an active role in the funeral and the community activities afterwards just to show that it, we were trying to be compassionate to their needs and help them deal with the tragedy of their loss. 
Right, and, and you do a great job. Um, doctor, let's talk about the mechanism of, of death and what you see is a primary cause of deaths and fires, please. Well, the primary uh, cause is uh, <laughs> kind of delayed detection and delayed response or sometimes uh, choosing the wrong response. Um, and uh, we've learned a lot from from setting real fires in real buildings over the past 40-plus years. And uh, we now have a feel for the time frames involved and how fire gases uh, accumulate in a room and what the danger stages are and where people should be heading uh, and when and things like that. Uh, for instance, a lot of people have never seen a, a room fire and they have very limited appreciation for um, what's actually going on and how fast it can spread. Uh, if, if all you uh, have experienced in terms of room fires is what you see on television or the movies, you have a very skewed um, uh, version of things. And the short answer is you don't have time to to stand around and discuss things and, uh, you know, plan what you're going to do and, you know, what's, how this all happened. Your, your emphasis is to get out as fast as possible. And um, to that end, you have to understand that a small fire, for instance, a wastebasket fire, next to a large fuel load, like a bed, a modern mattress, or a modern sofa, both of which are filled usually with polyurethane foam and synthetic uh, coverings, uh, or even wood paneling um, on, a, on the wall. Uh, that's going to spread very quickly, and you have a minute or two uh, to deal with a fire. If it's small enough that you can, you can throw a bucket of water on it or use a fire extinguisher, it's handy. That's about all you can do. Other than that, you need to get out as quickly as possible and get your family uh, out as well. And um, because what we've learned is that a fire on, say, a modern mattress started with a match will result in full involvement of an average-sized bedroom in four to five minutes. That's fantastic. You you will not survive that four to five minutes because the uh, hot gases that are originally generated and the toxic smoke rise to the ceiling they're trapped there by the ceiling, and you think, oh, okay, it's you know, it's gonna it's gonna be up there. Well, yeah, but as the fire grows, that layer is gonna get deeper and hotter, and um, you have to stay low and stay below that smoke because that's where all of the danger is. Whether it's thermal uh, damage to the your tissues if you inhale any of it, or the toxic products, or even the lack of oxygen. Uh, that's present in that in that layer. You have to stay below that layer, and uh, <clears throat> that means you only have a minute or two to do whatever you're going to do in that room, and then get out if it's if the fire continues to grow. And even a small amount of that it can can cause confusion. Correct. Well, that's right. If if, if it's started as a smoldering fire in the room, and you're breathing the um, the toxic uh, gases, uh, CO and hydrogen cyanide that are 
generated by most combustion processes in modern furnishings. Um, that's one of the first symptoms is, is lack of awareness and, and confusion about what you should be doing. It's almost like being drunk, um, and the oxygen deprivation will also um, add to that. And so people die in many cases because they make the wrong decisions. They don't know what to do, and they, they, they die basically of, of making the wrong choice. And usually that's staying too long in the room. But sometimes if they wake up in the, in the fire and uh, that time frame has already elapsed, then, then they don't have any um, flexibility, shall we say, in getting out. What happens is that the smoke gets deeper, and the smoke layer at the ceiling gets deeper and hotter, and eventually it can be fuel-rich enough to actually ignite. So you get flames extending across the width of the room, and that's a stage of fire called rollover or flameover. And um, you can still escape that, but now the radiant heat from that layer is going to get you wherever you are in the room. Yeah, and that doesn't doesn't that explain also uh, why you, you find a lot of fire victims they'll be in a room that you wouldn't anticipate they'd be in that like it started in their bedroom and then they they end up in in a in a in a room that they can't get out of they go to a living room that doesn't have an exit door uh, because they're confused by the by the uh, smoke inhalation is that correct? That's right. We find a number of uh, children victims, especially uh, in closets. Uh, because they think they're going to hide from the fire, or in some cases under a bed. Um, um, adults will usually get manage to get out the room, out of the room, but um, make a wrong choice in the smoke and the con- mental confusion, and turn into a bathroom, which has usually has no exit, and they they find their trap there. Some of, some of them believe, I'm sorry, uh, that they can get water, too. And I was going to say, and Chief, you, you know this very well, uh, the importance of having a fire safety plan. Absolutely. And the uh, ideas of having uh, early warning smoke alarm, CO alarm, and residential sprinklers and uh, having the systems in place to help you. Because uh, the doc is correct. The, the time frame you have is very limited and often... The byproducts of combustion cause disorientation, and I've seen over the years that, that you would think someone would make it out, but they're, they just don't because they make a wrong turn, they end up in a different part of the house, and they become uh, overcome by the, the toxicity of the fumes. And so that's why it's important to have all those pieces in place, uh, uh, working uh, smoke alarms and potentially residential sprinklers, having a plan, and also the other pieces, once you're out, stay out. Uh, oftentimes we see people going back for possessions or other items and uh, end up getting into a very tough situation because they re-enter the structure. Sure, sure, and practice that plan. Uh, just like muscle has memory of memory, if you've practiced, and especially with kids, you practice where to go and what to do. When you hear that smoke alarm, that is crucial, correct? Absolutely. And we, we find that uh, there is a lot of different discussions about the type of uh, audible tone and also uh, the location of those alarms. And now it's suggested to have a working smoke alarm on every level. 
of your home and also have them sealed units with 10-year batteries so that you don't have to worry about chirping or those batteries going dead and then forgetting to replace them. All right, great. Um, another, doctor, you, another factor you, about the yeah. smoke layer coming in and filling the room from the ceiling down is that <clears throat> if it's dark enough, um, uh, dense enough smoke, it's going to block any, any light coming from the ceiling or, in fact, even high windows. And as a result, they, they come in, they turn the lights on as part of their response, and, and they don't see anything because the smoke layer is obscuring all the overhead light. That's why many uh, building codes today uh, have the exit marker lights for exits um, at not only above a door, but 18 inches off the floor, so that when you're mm-hmm. crawling uh, down a corridor, um, you, you, there's, there's no light coming from above, and you can see the exit sign. In fact, that, was, that reminds me, one of the, yeah. one of the uh, uh, things to keep in mind is that wherever you are, um, get your head up out of that cell phone and figure out if, if there is a fire, how do I get out of this place? Uh, right. Where is the nearest exit? And um, where, does that, where does that go? Um, be aware of your surroundings because we see a lot of multiple death cases where... Um, you know they're trapped in a in a in a restaurant or a theater, and uh, they haven't thought about that. So when the emergency occurs, now they've got even less time to figure out where they're going to go. And keep in mind, if there's a crowd around you, they're all going to be in the same state of confusion, and as a result, that's going to delay your exit even further. Right, and the fact of the matter is, they've done a study about that, uh, haven't they? They said. Uh, that um, that they try to go out the same way they came in, which is which is causes you know a whole bunch of people trying to get out the same door they came in. Look at alternative exits so that you you can go out. Uh, uh, the station nightclub was a great uh, illustration of that, where they sh- they could have gotten people could have gotten out other exits, but they all tried to get out through the front door where they came in. Well, so, yeah, especially when the security guard turned people away from the, the one uh, exit that was closest to many of them. That's <clears throat> uh, crazy. Another, uh, yeah, and, and he managed to survive, oddly enough. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really, uh, really important. It's the NIST uh, study of the station nightclub fire, I was briefly involved in that investigation, um, and the NIST study estimated that you had less than two minutes from the start of the fire to get out. And you're laying you had in, in, 400 you're, people yeah. around you yeah. trying to get out the same way. So if you're laying in the bed and you wake up, your smoke alarm has gone up, you see there's smoke at, uh, above you, just roll off the bed and, go and crawl along the floor and get, get out. And uh, that seems to be a, a, a one tactic. The other one uh, is, of course, uh, go out the the nearest window um, and uh, or something. If you're on the second floor, have an escape ladder. I'm I'm trying to throw a few things in here for for, for like you do, Doc. Uh, trying to get it through to him. Go ahead. Another one is uh, at hotels and especially high rise hotels. I was just in Vegas. We were in Vegas, and I was up on the 21st floor. And so, of course, getting out of a window is not an option that, you know, even there's a plate of windows. So on the back of the hotel doors, every hotel, there is a escape plan. 
if you look at it, it tells you where you need to go because, of course, you're not going to get on an elevator. It's it's power. Power's going to go out. So it sh- shows you where the nearest staircase is and what you need to do. And if you can, go down. Don't go up. And, uh, and, and when, you know, when you have a minute, uh, when you're still moving your luggage in, count the doors between you and the nearest exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you're crawling along, you're not going to be able to see those landmarks of, like, room numbers. <laughs> right. So um, that's, a, that's an important survival tactic. And unfortunately, with all the travel I've had to do, I've had a lot of practice at that and uh, testing to make sure I understand how the door opens and things like that. I try not to stay above the seventh floor, too. Yeah, I do that. I've had a lot of, a lot of uh, clerks look at me funny, and, I, and I, they try to check me into a high-rise hotel, and I said, what's the lowest floor you have rooms on? Oh, yeah. six. I said, well, that's close enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. and, that, and Chief, you'll go along with that, won't you? And we tell the people why we stay under the seventh floor if possible. Absolutely, and it's all related to the capacity of the aerial apparatus to reach it. Um, and, and, of course, this is all about situational awareness. And sometimes right. we don't always do that. And when we're traveling or when we're visiting, we should always be looking for exits and uh, places to shelter and also the, the types of technology that's in place to help us with that early warning and ultimately exiting. That's great. Um, doctor, uh, the actual, so most of the people die. They don't do the TV thing, right? They don't, uh, they don't they're not bursting into flames and rolling around on the floor in fire. Uh, most of them die of smoke inhalation, then. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, flames uh, only really, in most instances, only um, are, are a factor in flash fires uh, or very late in the progression of the fire. Um, so we talked about earlier, once the, once the smoke layer ignites, then you have a tremendous amount of radiant heat coming down from that now burning smoke layer. If that conti- continues... Uh, for more than a, a few seconds, it now can ignite all of the contents of the room. And that's the stage of fire development called flashover. And that is, if, if everything you see is on fire, you have no chance of escape, basically. Um, and even a modern firefighter fully kitted with protective equipment has an estimated 8 to 10 seconds to get out. So you yes. really don't, you don't survive in a flashover fire. Yes, and and doctor, uh, well, yeah, and not you don't find many, thank God, because we have uh, a firefighter safety officers. You don't find many dying from uh, flashover, do we? Uh, uh, well, you know, Ron, that's a that's a that's definitely a, a question for you. Two two questions really. One is, uh, do many firefighters die in flashover? And the second one is, you got SCBAs. Uh, you know, you've got this uh, self-contained uh, breathing apparatus uh, as firefighters, yet firefighters still get killed in fires. Can you tell, tell us just kind of quickly about, because um, uh, we only got four minutes, uh, how many die or whatever? Well, on average, there's, there's about 70 firefighters who die in the line of duty each year. And the majority of them, the, the bulk of the firefighters, die from cardiac-related issues. Uh, there isn't a lot of firefighters who die traumatically in in burning buildings, but they just happen from time to time. And there is great personal protective equipment they have. 
The difficulty, there's often a catastrophic failure of that gear, thus exposing the body to very high temperatures. So there's a lot of discussion about that. There's uh, flashover simulators and other training techniques to help firefighters engage in emergency operations to read the fire. And then now there's a whole discussion of uh, application of water from the outside prior to entering the structure to control the fire spread and cool it down and make it more tenable for both the firefighter and anyone that's inside the building. That's great. Um, you know, I know that your your program of uh, Everyone Goes Home uh, is is very uh, very important, and and we want to talk about that here in the second uh, second segment that's coming up. But doctor, when we come back, doctor Bahan, uh, can you talk to us a little bit when we come back from our break? Will you talk to us a little bit about your fire research. I know that you have been uh, that you burned. Um, Pigs, uh, and and, and it's to show the effects of uh, of uh, a fire uh, on bodies, and and why did you pick pigs as opposed to um, uh, you know like bovines or something? And then you and then we'll talk about uh, some of your what your research uh, has shown and uh, something that we can learn from uh, to keep ourselves safe. Awesome. Sure, and Chief, when we come back also after the break, we want to talk about uh, some of the fire service uh, related injuries and, and occupational type sicknesses and things like that. The result of sure. aren't necessarily fatality. And don't let me forget, please, uh, about uh, about the National Fire Academy and the and the uh, the the, uh, the the memorial there. Because we want to talk about that too. Because people, not everybody knows about that outside the uh, the fire service. So you can see, and uh, and the the whole purpose of this show is is well, I've got a couple of reasons for doing the show. Don and I, uh, fire prevention. We don't want people to have fires. One, and then it's two is how to keep yourself safe, uh, even if you have a fire and not die in it. And then three is uh, is uh, is prevention of arson. Our deterrence of arson. We're going to we're going to show people how we're going to catch you. And doctor, you could throw some stuff in on that because uh, some people, you know, um, uh, will commit a murder and then and then uh, and then try to burn the place and cover it up. And you can tell us not how you do it, but you can tell us that uh, that we uh, <laughs> that we that we're going to catch you. Okay, so let's uh, let's I thank you. So let's go now to our our break. Um, and uh, when you come back, please come back to Speaking of Fire. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com. 
or call 913-262-5200. Fireanalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlappman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show... Please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. We're glad you joined us. John, uh, Don, uh, Doctor, you we were talking before uh, before we went to break. Um, you have done so much uh, research on uh, on on fire deaths and stuff. Can you enlighten us a little bit about what your research is showing? Sure. As a as a criminalist uh, in general crime scene work, I responded to a lot of of uh, fatal fires and homicides and accidental deaths and things like that, and. Uh, it was clear that uh, uh, when you do have a, a body in a fire, um, we didn't know a lot about what happens to the body. Um, uh, we have some assessment of the, of the burn injuries and things like that while the individual is still alive. But what, what happens when it's, a, when it's a body, it's now a target of the, of the growing fire. And uh, there were a lot of misconceptions, uh, even on the part of professional forensic pathologists and homicide investigators about uh, what that entailed. So in addition to the probably five or 600 structure fires that I've uh, observed as, um, as, a, as an investigator uh, and trainer, over the past 40 years, uh, in the last few years, I've had an opportunity to actually work with um, cadavers and um, pig carcasses as a substitute in in real fires, and uh, we've exposed them to vehicle fires and and bedroom fires and RV fires and fires in the outside, uh, burn barrels and and uh, and trench fires and things like that to see what happens to a, to a body over what period of time. And what the what the remains can tell us about that exposure, and that's been absolutely invaluable. It's it's unique uh, research um, that we've uh, been able to to conduct as part of a, a training class in forensic fire death investigation, and uh, we've learned some things about how bodies move. Um, and when they're exposed to it, when a, how a dead body moves when it's exposed to fire, and it turns out limbs can move, heads, heads and necks can can move different directions, hips, and the body can end up in a very different position after fire exposure than the way it started. 
and we have to warn fire death investigators and pathologists not to not to assume too much about the 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 final position of the body as it's finally recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have discovered that pigs have have uh, some uh, usefulness in evaluating um, general fire effects, but their their fat distribution and their skin thickness is different than humans, and as a result, we have to be careful about translating those, uh, especially time and intensity factors, to human victims. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've worked many uh, of fatality, and I'm sorry, uh, both as a police officer and also in the private sector. And there are um, there are some myths out there about um, about fire deaths. One of them being, of course, spontaneous human combustion. Uh, and uh, yes, the fat of your body burns off. Yes, it does, and and uh, and it can leave charring, etc. But would you just for a second? Uh, try to dispel uh, <laughs> that myth of spontaneous human <laughs> combustion. Because I always think about that. If, if it was real, we'd be walking down the street and suddenly somebody just burst into flames. Sometime. Well, and I can give you an example. That would be me. Might because <laughs> at my age. <laughs> Trust me, I've put my head in a freezer enough times and thought, boy, I hope that is a myth. And okay. so, coastal, coastal Georgia in in August, you're absolutely convinced it's going to happen any moment. That's right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd be I'd be glad to because of course this this is you know sometimes uh, suggested when they have a mysterious uh, circumstance where the damage to the body doesn't match the damage to the room. Uh, they can't find another source. If you have to leave early, the short answer is there is no such thing as spontaneous human combustion. The body has. A mechanism actually of generating very small quantities of flammable uh, uh, liquids like acetone in in death uh, sorry in illnesses, but there's no mechanism in the body to actually ignite those materials, and there isn't any well considering the wet and oxygen deficient atmosphere inside the human body. There's there's no way anything can can actually burn. Almost all of these can be traced back to an accidental ig- or sometimes rare instances, uh, intentional ignition of the clothing uh, or the bedding that the person is is exposed to. And because uh, if you actually, it turns out that if you actually just dump gasoline on a naked body, it burns off in a minute or so, scorches the skin, and then goes out. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the subcutaneous fat under the skin that actually melts when, and renders out when the skin actually shrinks and splits. Uh, from a sustained fire exposure on the outside, and that's what keeps the keeps can keep a fire going um, in the vicinity of a of a body, and mm-hmm. uh, it's a pretty good fuel. It's not as good as candle wax or gasoline, but it does have significant amount of of um, what's called heat of combustion, which is how much energy it generates per every gram burned, and. Um, I've actually started fires with uh, a, a, a cadaver in um, wrapped in a, like a cotton blanket or wearing cotton sweatshirt and ignited it with just a match and a wad of paper. And the body will burn happily all by itself for six or seven hours Good and do grief. a great deal of damage to the body. Um, Not sure. And yet at no time is that fire big enough to actually involve other 
materials in the room. It's like having a wastebasket fire in the room. And as a result, if this all happens in the, under the right circumstances over a long enough period of time, somebody comes in, finds this very badly burned body, and goes, well, nothing else in the room is burned except the rug or the chair that they're sitting in. Oh, my God, this must have been spontaneous human combustion. And it's not. It's, it's almost always accidental. Yeah, I know. I've seen many of these. Um, uh, you know, the picture of the uh, overstuffed chair with to- totally burned out, and then just having a, a feet or, or you know a little bit of the ankles and stuff left, and and uh, and the rest of the body is being burned uh, <clears throat> severely. Um, now, was <laughs> yeah. there any? And that's, is there- and that's actually a reflection of the distribution of fat <clears throat> in the body, because. Um, in, no matter how much body fat you might have in the middle of your torso, around your hips or wherever, um, there's very little fat around your fingers or hands, very little below the ankles, and as re- or around the head. And as a result, those are the those are the parts of the body that are most likely to survive this kind of exposure. But people look at at this you know burned body and go, oh my God, you know it had to have been intentionally done. No. <laughs> is, it, is there any truth to uh, alcoholics having uh, have some alcohol in their system, and that also assists in the uh, burning? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's something no, that's else more... that we that's that's something else we uh, owe to uh, the notable scientist Charles Dickens, um, <clears throat> who was an anti-alcohol campaigner, and he that's why he painted that horrible death of Mister Crook, I think it was. Um, as uh, because he was he was inebriated all the time, but it turns out even if you saturate <clears throat> uh, meat with alcohol, it'll burn off the surface, but doesn't really do anything else. That's great um, news for me. And uh, but <laughs> interestingly enough, it does have a a side effect that people who are inebriated are more likely to drop their cigarettes or their matches in their laps. Uh, or start other, you know, clothing or bedding on fire. So they are more susceptible to fires. But it doesn't have anything to do with spontaneous human combustion. Including well, unattended cooking. Yeah, unattended. Oh, that's yeah, my that's God. right. Cooking. Um, somebody leans over um, um, a stove and uh, ignites the loose sleeve of their of their dressing gown, for instance, or their shirt, and they're so astounded that they you know that they that they inhale and they inhale the flames and collapse there from inhaling the flames and go on to to burn <clears throat> as a as an isolated fire Right, and you know that really reinforces my Scotch drinking. I appreciate that because I'm not I'm not an alcoholic, but I do have a Scotch on occasion. That's that's but, right. But, you can't have enough uh, alcohol in your breath to actually no. present an ignition risk. <laughs> okay, well, that, and but see, um, okay, so let's talk about one other thing about the fire deaths. Now, uh, when you have. And you were called to the scene as a criminalist, right, uh, to, yes. to look at, the, at, at... Now, I had one where this guy committed a murder, and what he did was he poured this uh, uh, body with gasoline all around it and then ignited it and thought that somebody would believe uh, that... Our, first of all, that the body would be destroyed and couldn't be identified, which is totally <laughs> crazy. And then, and then secondly, that all the evidence would have burned up. Had you been there at the scene, uh, Doctor, you you would have uh, seen a lot of um, 
a lot of things. Well, just re- uh, reinforce the idea that if you you try to kill somebody and burn them, that's not going to work. You want to tell us why? Why would uh, we don't tell why? But I mean, one of the things that have been on TV is CSI is about trachea and stuff like that. So you can talk about that. Well, yeah, it's it's actually pretty pretty difficult to destroy a, a human body to the point where uh, certain. Uh, mechanisms are, are going to be, uh, or evidence that the pathologist is going to look for is going to be compromised to the point of uh, inaccessibility. Um, as, as part of my uh, uh, duties, uh, when I served with the Texas State Fire Marshal uh, case review panel uh, over about a three-year period, we dealt with a number of fatal fires, and uh, they had been prosecuted as you know, deliberate fires and, and murders, and when the forensic pathologist, who's um, tremendously uh, experienced in, in fire cases, uh, Dr. Pirwani from, uh, from Tarrant County, Texas, and I would look at the... Um, when, I, when we would look at the body and the, and the pathology, we'd go, oh, yeah, and there's, there's no uh, internal dam- thermal damage to the trachea uh, or, the, or the lower parts of the um, um, respiratory system, and uh, the toxicology isn't right for somebody who, was, um, who should have been inhaling the combustion products in the fire. And um, it turns out that, well... The original call was based on uh, soot in the mouth. Well, he realized the individual was lying on his back when mm. the fire was created around him, and soot is settling on the surfaces in the room. And with his mouth open, he basically had, he was just a target uh, for some of the soot. Uh, there was no thermal damage that accompanied it. And so but. knowing the dynamics of the fire and the, and the, um, the, the changes um, it can make to a body allows us to come to a much more um, uh, much more frequently co- correct call on this. So some of these okay. cases that have been in appeal for 10 years or more, we were able to look at and say, nope, he was dead before the fire by another yeah. mechanism. It, didn't, it wasn't the fire that killed him. How much carbon monoxide does it take? Uh, I know it's in your blood, and, and you test the blood, and you find out uh, what the parts per, whatever is, part per liter um, or whatever. How much does that take, Doc? Uh, well, um, CO actually, uh, for, <clears throat> excuse me, for many years, we thought that everyone thought that CO uh, basically displaces the oxygen in the circulation system in the respiratory uptake. And, and CO, by the way, has to be absorbed uh, through the lungs. There's no, there's no mechanism post-mortem, for instance, that CO can seep into, into dead tissue. And, um, um, but once it's inhaled, it uh, is absorbed into the hemoglobin uh, in the lungs, transferred in there, and that displaces the oxygen-carrying capability of the blood, and it stays in the blood much longer than CO2 or oxygen does, so it basically depletes the oxygen level. But it turns out CO, um, when it comes into contact with the, especially the nerve cells, uh, can actually kill the, kill the, the, uh, the cells, uh, interfere with their, their own uh, uh, chemical production of energy. And this is especially true in the neurons of the brain and also the uh, red muscle of the heart. And so this is, 
This is really the insidious killer. Now, everybody's exposed to CO all the time, especially in, in, in older times when you had cigarette smokers, which and the cigarette smoke is about 10% CO of, of mm-hmm. all the smoke that it's, uh, it's generating. So in a crowded nightclub, for instance, you would be exposed to it, and you get a headache, you'd feel kind of dizzy if you're not a smoker, and that's the first stage of CO intoxication. If it gets higher than about... 10 to 15 percent in the in the bloodstream then you start feeling nauseous you start to kind of uh, get confused um, and we talked about that a minute ago um, and over 30 percent you run a risk of actual unconsciousness and typically over 40 percent if you're a healthy adult that's the key element here if there's if there's more than about 40 percent you run a real risk of dying just yeah, I know. The CO without any that, other toxic or thermal effects. The key another, there is if you're healthy, if you have a pre-existing heart or or lung condition that's already compromised your oxygen uptake. Uh, I've had fatalities with um, elderly people, especially at concentrations of, and it's measured by the percent saturation in the blood. Right, um, and, and so. And that, if, you know, I've had fatalities as low as 21% um, CO in the blood. Okay, well, doctor, that, uh, that's another reason not to smoke for sure. Um, chief, <laughs> chief, yeah. chief, yeah, um, you are just poisoning yourself. So, yeah, that's you know. right. So, chief, when somebody dies in a, in a, when a firefighter dies, uh, what does the Fallen Firefighters Foundation do? Then? We when you reach out to the... Yeah, we reach out to the department, and within six hours of the reported line of duty death, we have teams in every state called LAST, Local Assistance State Team. And they go in and provide assistance to the department. Uh, they will help with the funeral plans. They will have some support for the community and the family members. And then the big thing they do is they try to help with the massive amounts of paperwork uh, that are required for some of the benefits in some of the long-term care. And then the foundation reaches out to the families to begin their journey of uh, trying to bring some normalcy back to their life with programs, outreach, support. Uh, We use survivors from previous line of duty deaths as our peers to provide that intervention immediately. And so what we find is that the, the families go through that grieving process, the many stages of grief, and we try to bring them to Emmitsburg the following October for the National Memorial, which is located at the home of the National Fire Academy at the National Emergency Training Center in Emmitsburg, which is where we're headquartered, mm-hmm. and really yes, introduce I... them to our programs and services that we provide on a year-round basis. It's a wonderful ceremony, Ron Chief. That uh, I've been there, and it's it's touching. And uh, and the night before the uh, the church services is, is will rip your heart out. Actually, if you're you're in the fire service and you see these families, uh, and um, anyway, but uh, but you, how do you how are you supported in this? How how do you get your the money to be able to do this, Chief? Actually, we have to raise it. Uh, we have a congressional mandate to honor every firefighter in America who dies in a line of duty and to help the families rebuild their lives. But when Congress created us, they decided that uh, we would have to find our own funding. So we're not in the federal budget. Uh, we compete for grants. We do corporate partnerships. 
and we depend upon donations. Uh, there's a lot of information about who we are and what we do at our website, uh, firehero.org. Again, that's firehero.org. And you can read about our programs, our intervention, our support for departments, our support for the families, and how you can help us by supporting a family's coming to Emmitsburg or our Survivors Conference where we teach life skills or scholarships or camp opportunities for the children of fallen firefighters. It's not only uh, uh, fire deaths, uh, firefighter fire deaths that you, you're also involved with occupational injuries and cancers, correct? We are. We've started a program uh, almost uh, 14 years ago called Everyone Goes Home. And it's intended to look at a blueprint for reducing firefighter illness, injuries, and deaths. And that effort has taken us on a variety of journeys on cardiac, which is the leading cause, vehicle accidents, second leading cause, and then, of course, the elements of injury prevention. And we're working right now a lot with the concept of occupational cancers. There's been a National Fire Service Cancer Alliance formed. And in September, we will be in Phoenix with the first ever national symposium on occupational cancers in the fire service. And that will be October 6th and 7th in downtown Phoenix. There's information on our website, firehero.org, about that. And also the Memorial Weekend, October 7th and 8th, where we'll honor all the firefighters from 2016 who died in the line of duty in our country. Yes, you know that is a that is a wonderful ceremony, and you guys, uh, uh, I know that you're of um, tremendous help. We had a couple of firefighters killed here um, a year and a half ago uh, when a wall fell on them in a, during an arson fire, and um, and that there's been a big a lot of media coverage in that, and I know that your team. Uh, was involved uh, in in supporting the families there. Uh, do the families stay? Uh, they stay in touch with you after um, after their um, their firefighter has uh, has died. I, I know that I met a few of them uh, uh, in at um, at NFA at the National Fire uh, Academy. Um, do then they 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 stick pretty close. It's a big uh, well, it's a brotherhood, isn't it? It's a family, yes, and they do. We, we, we're we servicing about 6,000 families across the country from line of duty deaths. Uh, once we reach out to them, we probably partner them up with another survivor from a different incident who's been down that journey partway and can help them, guide them as they go. And we're there for as long as they need us, whether it's scholarships or job training or support with uh, peer intervention or counseling life skills, whatever it might be. And our goal is to help them find their new normal and get uh, their lives back to some place that is manageable for them and and kind of kick them out of the nest, to use that analogy. Mm -hmm. Our goal, though, is if they need us, well, and we'll be there for whatever they might need to deal with the tragedies and the loss of their loved ones. May I ask, Chief, what what have you found is the most common uh, cause of death for firefighters? The the leading cause is cardiac, and that Mm -hmm. is based on the existing criteria. Heart attacks, Mm -hmm. cardiac, uh, cardiac, uh, vascular ruptures, excuse me. And and oftentimes we see them within the 24-hour period after an emergency Mm -hmm. response or a strenuous training activity. 
And so fortunately, Hilltown Heroes was the legislation that provided federal funding for the federal death benefit, which we helped the Department of Justice in that delivery and support to get those claims processed for the families. And that's part of what the last teams do. Well, we really, uh, as citizens, appreciate what you do. Absolutely. And protecting our first responders. And I want to urge everybody and any of our listeners, either in the United States or internationally, and we have a lot of people uh, in Sweden and France and Germany and UK, to uh, support the Fallen Firefighters Foundation uh, through, um, give your website again, Chief. Absolutely. It's firehero.org. And uh, there's all information about who we are, what we do, and how people can donate if they'd like. All right. And, uh, and I want to also bring up one other thing. John, you, um, you are there, and, and I know that you're retiring. However, you've done a lot of, uh, a lot of research to help uh, save all of uh, all, uh, civilians and firefighters. Uh, I know that, uh, that you will echo that uh, if you've got a home, uh, home, home sprinkler, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's better, and uh, there are zones, so only one room will go off. Now, we only got two minutes left. Uh, if there's any other issues either one of you guys want to address before we uh, go off, uh, we've only got about a minute and 30 seconds now. So <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll chime in and say and, and echo your sentiment. Um, having home sprinklers um, in your home is the best thing you can do to protect your family uh, because they've made a tremendous difference in uh, every occupancy, whether it's public occupancy or private, uh, where they've put out fires before they can get big enough to be a a danger, and uh, they're irreplaceable for that. Um, Also, interestingly enough, the comment I made a little while ago about carbon monoxide, that's actually uh, one of the suggestions that firefighters expose to CO, especially when the fire's out and they're in there doing cleanup and stuff like that. The CO is doing its damage to the nerves in the heart muscle. And uh, that may be one of the triggers for delayed uh, uh, heart problems. Well, I thank you for bringing that up. And and, uh, first of all, I want to thank both of you guys for being here with us. Dr. John DeHaan, Chief uh, Ronald uh, John Sarnacki, both of you. Please support the Fallen Firefighters Foundation. Next week, we're going to have a, a new guest, and we're not going to tell you about it. It's going to be a surprise, and uh, and we're going to um, – it'll be fun, and, and not to worry. Um, I thank everybody for listening. Thanks so much. Have a great thank week. Thank you for thanks. having us. Absolutely. Thanks. My, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Well, you guys do terrific. Thanks a lot, and come back next week to Speaking of Fire. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.